Good morning. It is truly a blessing uh, that God has given us to be together, to worship him together, uh, to study from his word. I, I want to continue our series focusing on the Holy Spirit today. Um, and, and the more time that I spend studying and meditating on what the scripture has to say about the spirit, uh, the more intimidated <laughs> And overwhelmed I am uh, with the prospect of continuing this series uh, on the Spirit. Um, and yet the more impressed I am of the need to focus on it. Uh, the importance of what the scripture teaches us about the Spirit. Uh, the source of our new birth. Uh, the indwelling presence of God. Our, our promised helper under the new covenant. And as I was working on the lesson for today, it kept getting longer and longer and longer. And so I decided instead of preaching probably over an hour today, uh, we're going to do a part one and a part two uh, to, to our focus today. We're going to talk about the spirit of God as the revealer of truth. We talked about God's spirit as the breath of life. Uh, the giver of life. In one sense, uh, animating all life, uh, all creatures, and yet in a specific sense, uh, granting us new spiritual life uh, in Christ. We talked about the Spirit as God's presence, uh, both active and aware in all of creation, God being omnipresent, and yet given specifically to his people as a, a fellowship and attentiveness and a, and a blessing of his presence dwelling within our bodies and our hearts. But now I want to talk about the spirit as the spirit of truth, as it often is referred to, the revealer of God's word, the inspiring breath of all scripture and prophecy. And if we were to just go through the scripture and kind of list out all of the passages that talk about the different works of the spirit throughout history and in our lives today, by far, I think we would see that, that this is the work of the spirit that is spoken of um, most prevalently. It is perhaps the most significant and certainly the most visible and discernible work of the spirit continuing in our lives today. This very Bible that we hold is a living, powerful, tangible demonstration of the Spirit's work of revelation. And so I think it's appropriate that we maybe pause to take a little more time to, to think through and talk through what the Scripture says about this work of the Spirit as revealer of truth. We'll see as we start in the Old Testament that one of the most significant works of the Spirit throughout the Old Covenant was the revelation of God's Word. We looked at a couple examples last week where we see uh, that prophecy was often the initial evidence of God's spirit uh, at work in certain people. You may remember we talked about Numbers 11, where uh, God commissions the 70 elders of Israel to share in some of the leadership of the people uh, that he had entrusted to Moses. And so he, he grants his spirit to the seven the elders, and, and how is that made evident to the people? Do you remember? Initially, those 70 elders begin to prophesy, and it specifies they didn't continue to do this. God wasn't commissioning them to the work of prophets, but the evidence that showed to the people that the Spirit was upon them, that God's authority was being entrusted to them, was that they prophesied. 
You see the same thing in 1 Samuel 10 and verse 10 when Saul is anointed as king and Samuel assures him that God's spirit is going to be with him. But how is that made evident? Well, the spirit comes, uh, rushes upon Saul and he begins to prophesy. Uh, There's a couple of different times in Saul's life where that happens. Saul is not among the prophets and yet the evidence of God's spirit was this idea of him prophesying through Saul. And so early on in the scriptures, we see a strong association between the spirit, its work, and prophecy. Um, you, you might almost say that, that prophesying equals the spirit and the spirit equals prophesying in many cases throughout the Old Testament. And we could look at countless examples of the spirit speaking through the prophets. Uh, some of the most explicit examples, Numbers 24, we see uh, the spirit speaking blessings instead of cursings upon Israel through the mouth of Balaam. Second Chronicles 15, we see Azariah prophesies to King Asa by the spirit. Uh, Second Chronicles 20, Je- uh, uh, Jehaziel prophesies to King Jehoshaphat by the spirit. Second Chronicles 24, Zechariah prophesies to King Joash by the spirit. Throughout the book of Ezekiel, Numerous times it specifies that his visionary experiences and his work as a prophet were coming through the spirit. Micah 3 and verse 8, Micah in contrast to the false prophets makes it evident that God's spirit was speaking through him. Uh, Acts 1, Peter says that the spirit spoke by the mouth of David. Uh, Acts 28, Paul says that the spirit spoke through the mouth of Isaiah, the prophet. And those are just some of the most obvious examples. So as we said, if we were to put a list of all of the works that we see the Spirit doing, this is what we see predominantly, the work of the Spirit being through the the prophets, speaking God's word, revealing the truth. And the work of Revelation also features strongly in the promises of the Spirit's work under the new covenant. Uh, Turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 59. We've seen some earlier prophecies in Isaiah 32 and Isaiah 44 about the pouring out of God's spirit and this new spiritual life that would be given, uh, kind of this picture of water being poured out upon a thirsty land and it's springing up as an oasis, uh, then becoming willows by the, the streams of water. Uh, but later in Isaiah, notice what's said about the spirit once again. Um, Isaiah 59, we'll start reading in verse 20. It says, And a redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. We talked a little bit about this idea of Hebrew parallelism. We saw that idea of God's spirit and God's presence being paralleled in uh, Psalm 51 and Psalm 139. Do you notice the parallel here in Isaiah 59? God's spirit upon them and his words in their mouth. That the God's revelation would continue to be with them um, throughout all all generations. We'll talk more about how that is fulfilled. Um, But here, Joel 2 even, the passage that that Peter calls to mind in Acts 2 uh, about the pouring out of the Spirit, it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall 
prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young women shall see visions. What do all those things have in common? Revelation from God. That, that is the primary focus of the spirit. We talked about these ideas earlier in Isaiah of this idea of new life, um, them being willows beside the river of water. Well, how, how does that happen though? Practically speaking, how do they become trees planted by the rivers of water? By God's word, by God's revelation. Um, that, that's the idea from Psalm 1. Uh, the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. And so all this picture of spiritual renewal of spiritual life, much of that calls our minds back to God revealing his word and revealing his will through the spirit. And we see the same idea as we come to the New Testament. Open your Bibles to John chapter 14. Jesus, uh, on the night that he is betrayed, has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit uh, to his disciples. He's getting ready to leave them. But he wants to assure them that he's not leaving them alone. He's going to send another helper, another comforter. I, I want to just look at the four statements that he makes about the Spirit and see what, what the common focus is in those statements. John 14, verse 16 and 17, um, starting verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. How, how does he talk about the spirit here? This comforter, this advocate uh, that is going to come and be with them. But he calls him the spirit of truth. Um, look a little later in John 14, verse 25 and 26. It says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What is the Spirit going to do? How is it going to function as their helper? It's going to teach them all things. Look a little later, uh, John 15 and verse 26 but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What is the Spirit going to do? He's going to teach them all things. He's going to bear witness. Uh, John 16, verse 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. What is the spirit going to do? He's going to be our helper. He's going to be our comforter. But, but he's not just a, that's not a passive work. That he comforts us and helps us just by the fact that we kind of know he's there. No, Jesus specifies what the primary work is that the Spirit's going to do. He's going to teach them all things. He's going to guide them into all truth. That's why he's called the Spirit of truth. He's going to bear witness. He's going to declare to them. That, that's the primary work of the Spirit. And so when we see this constant focus, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, on the Spirit's work of revelation, of teaching, I think we can't help but acknowledge that biblically, this is the most foundational work of the Spirit and his role 
uh, as revealer of truth. Certainly, uh, the New Testament, John talks about Jesus as the word. God's communication to mankind. The word become flesh. But as Jesus returns to the Father, the word doesn't leave us, does it? No, as Jesus returns to the Father, he says, I have many more things to teach you, but the Spirit's going to complete that work. The Spirit takes on that role of the word. He fulfills and completes God's message that began through Jesus. So that's why Isaiah 59 can say that his word will never depart from our mouths, but abide forever. While Jesus went back to the Father, the Spirit and his work of revelation is going to continue with us um, until we we are taken to the Father. And so if we recognize this as the primary work of the Spirit, we see that the miraculous works of the Spirit function primarily as signs that the message, the truth that the Spirit was speaking, was genuinely from the Lord. Um, Most of the other visible works of the Spirit are ultimately subservient to this higher purpose of revelation. Tongue speaking, miraculous healings, other supernatural demonstrations of the Spirit's power weren't just given to kind of spice up their worship services. You know, and, and give them some, uh, you know, gr- greater experience uh, of, uh, of God. It was intended to impress a message from God upon their hearts. Look, look in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. We're going to start reading in verse 15. This is what we sometimes call the Great Commission. Uh, Starting in verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the accompanying signs. Here, Mark calls these miraculous works, the the healings, the preservation of their health, even though, um, you know, bitten by serpents or taking poison, that these are signs. They point towards something. What, What are they pointing towards? We see very clearly down in verse 20 what they're pointing towards. They're confirming the message. They're confirming the gospel that there is salvation through Jesus. You know, the, the, the good news, the gospel was not, look at all these cool things that I'm going to let you be able to do. That, that's not the good news, right? Those were pointing towards the good news. I, I know Carl has made this point uh, several times in regard to the word signs, but, but, but think about this for a moment. A sign points towards something. Imagine that, that you are exploring somewhere and you're driving along and you see a sign that says, scenic view this way. And so you say, that sounds great. Let's, let's stop our car. Everybody get out. We're all going to take a picture with this sign and then we're going to get back in our car and keep going. Well, no, the sign's pointing towards something, right? And that's the same thing that we see with these works of the Spirit 
It's not that that was the be-all, end-all of what experiencing the Spirit was supposed to be. There were powerful demonstrations that the Spirit wants us to understand something. Wants us to understand something so much more important. Not just that Jesus can save you from from physical uh, ailments, but that he can save you from death. That he can save your eternal soul. We see this concept in Matthew chapter 9. Remember in Matthew chapter 9 where the, the paralytic... Is, is let down, um, and uh, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And then when, when the people start to, to grumble about that, well, no, that's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins except for God. What, what does Jesus do? He says there in, in Matthew 9, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You know, it was certainly a great blessing to this man that Jesus healed him from his paralysis. Praise God for that. It's certainly a demonstration of Jesus' love and compassion for this man and the suffering and limitations that he's dealing with. But that wasn't the primary need in this situation. And what Jesus first says and what he says this sign is intended to to point them towards is not that Jesus can save from physical ailments, but that Jesus can save the body from ultimate death, that Jesus can save our eternal souls from being separated from the Lord, that he can forgive us of our sins. If Jesus had healed this man of his paralysis but not addressed the needs of his soul, what would that have done for this man? Well, it would have been would have been great, you know, for him to, to experience, I don't know how many more years of life, not being confined to his bed. But if that's all that he got, that, that would be all for naught, right? The, these works of the Spirit were not intended to be an end within themselves, but a means towards an end. Of pointing us towards something so much more important, so much more valuable pointing us towards the message of the gospel. You can look in Hebrews chapter 2 as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Here the Hebrew writer says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What were these signs and wonders and miracles and miraculous gifts intended to, to do? They were testifying to the truth of the great salvation that the apostles were proclaiming. That Jesus saves. And so we need to recognize the, the importance of what God is trying to impress upon our minds. The message he is trying to get across to us through these works of the spirit. Uh, and that needs to be, uh, I believe, our, our emphasis as we think about uh, the spirit's work But as we recognize uh, that certainly the Spirit's primary work was to uh, bring the word of God to us, uh, to confirm the message, to guide us into all truth, we need to recognize as well that we're often warned 
uh, in the Old and New Testament against false prophets who would speak from the deceit of their own minds and hearts. First John chapter four and verse one says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're, we're going to talk later on, uh, perhaps next uh, study, about how we test those spirits. But I want you to notice the fact here. He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And we need to be discerning. We need to be careful. We need to be cautious that we're not being led astray by somebody who is claiming to speak by the spirit. When in fact, uh, that's not where their message is coming from at all. I think sometimes, you know, when people claim to be speaking from God, when they claim to have a message from God, when they claim to be doing uh, various miracles or speaking in tongues, and, and we question the validity of that, sometimes people say, well, you, you just don't have the faith that you need to. You, you just don't have the faith that God has the power to continue to work today. Uh, I, I hope that's not the case. Um, I think in many cases, that's, that's not the problem. Um, Perhaps if we took more seriously the biblical warnings time after time and after time again that warn us against being led astray by those who are claiming to speak for God, claiming to do works for God, uh, and, and are not actually from him, perhaps we would be more careful and more cautious, more discerning about these things. And so if, if we don't think that that is a, a problem, um, we need a deeper understanding and appreciation of the biblical warnings against false prophets. False prophets in the Bible are not a theoretical possibility, uh, but a very persistent reality. I want to spend some time in Jeremiah, if you want to turn back there. Jeremiah chapter 14 is where we'll start, but Jeremiah has a lot to say about false prophets, and he describes to some extent where their prophecy is coming from. It's not coming from the Lord. It's not coming from his spirit. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 14, verse 13 and 14 says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. God says, I didn't send them. I didn't speak to them. They're speaking the deceit of their own minds. Look a little later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, verse 16 and 17. Jeremiah 23, verse 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. Verse 25 through 27 of the same passage says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? See how many times God talks about this? 
Um, and we could see in many other books of the Bible uh, similar warnings against false apostles, false Christs, um, you know, false teachers, false prophets. But here, how is it described? Where, where is this message coming from? It's not from God's mouth. It's not from his spirit. It says it's coming from the deceit of their own heart and own mind. That, that could mean two different things. Um, it may mean that they knowingly are coming up with a message on their own and trying to deceive people by that message. It could be that it's talking about the own, their own self-deception. That, you know, they, they have a dream. They say, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. This must be from the Lord. And they're convincing themselves that they have some message from the Lord when in fact that's not the case. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 warns us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? A message that's coming from some feeling, some nudging deep in my heart, sounds pretty dangerous when you talk about biblical language. Have you ever heard somebody say something uh, like, you know, I just, I just really feel like God is telling me in my heart to do this. You know, I, I had this experience or I had this dream and, and I just, I think maybe God is, is trying to tell me such and such. I tell you, ironically, uh, yesterday I was at Panera, I was working on this sermon and I walked up to get some more coffee and two ladies were sitting right there and I heard that exact phrase. I, I think that maybe God is telling me to do such a thing. That, that's a very prevalent idea, right? But biblically, do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like what God is saying about the false prophets. That, that it, it's, it's some uh, emotion in their hearts, some deception within their hearts that it, they think, well, this is a message from God. That's not what we see when it comes to the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work of revelation was never a vague feeling deep in someone's heart. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, and I want us to read verse 19 through 21 here. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 19, says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see how the Spirit's work of revelation is described there? Scripture never came by someone's own interpretation. It was not some vague idea, some vague leading deep in their hearts. And they said, well, you know, I think that maybe this is what God is saying to us. That, that's not how prophecy works throughout the scripture. It wasn't left open to their own interpretation. It says men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that language is used when it describes the wind driving along a ship upon the sea. 
You think about the, the breath, the wind of God filling up the sails of their heart and their mind. They're driving them exactly in the direction that he wants them to go. That, that's the picture that we have of inspiration, of revelation. Uh, and we see this throughout the Old Testament. Um, you think about Ezekiel. Uh, if we look at, at the statements of the Spirit's work in Ezekiel life, uh, I want you to try to get a, a mental picture of what this might have looked like. Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 2, The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard. Ezekiel 3 and verse 12, The Spirit lifted me up, and I heard. Ezekiel 3 and verse 14, the spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness and the heat of my spirit and the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Ezekiel 3 and verse 24, but the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and he spoke with me. Ezekiel 8 and verse 3, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Do you get a mental picture of what's going on here? I kind of get this picture of of Ezekiel almost like a rag doll and and the spirit just keeps like lifting him up on his feet and and saying, okay, this is what I want you to say now. You know, he grabs him by the hair and he yanks him and and in this visionary experience, he brings him to Jerusalem. That's the spirit carrying along Ezekiel, right? Making sure that Ezekiel sees and says and declares exactly what the spirit wants him to declare. That's our picture of the spirit's work of revelation was not some deep emotional intuition or some vague inner guide that Ezekiel was experiencing. The message was not left up to Ezekiel correctly interpreting what what God was trying to say to him. God was carrying him along by the Spirit to ensure he got his message across. We see a very similar picture in the story of Balaam. You remember, in the story of Balaam, there's an interesting parallel between Balaam's donkey and how God speaks through Balaam's donkey and Balaam himself. Um, in fact, Balaam, as he's riding his donkey and his donkey isn't uh, obeying his leading, he, he starts getting angry at his donkey, right? It's, it's not obeying his guidance. And so Balaam as well is not really obeying the, the guidance of the Lord And so Balaam says, I wish I had a sword so that I could strike down my donkey. You know what's happening? God's angel is standing there with a sword getting ready to strike down Balaam. And God opens the mouth of the donkey to speak to Balaam. I want you to to notice in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 38, when Balaam finally gets has this experience with the Lord, with his angel, with his donkey. And then he gets to Balak, where he is, uh, Balak is trying to get him to curse God's people. And God has made it very clear. I'm not going to let you do that. Numbers 22 and verse 38. Balaam says to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. You know what that sounds like? A lot like his donkey, right? Does his donkey have any power to speak anything? No. But God put a word in his mouth. Does does Balaam have any power to say what he might want to say in that situation? No. God is going to make it uh, assured 
that Balaam is only going to say the words that God puts in his mouth. That's our picture of revelation. That's our picture of the Spirit's work of revealing truth. First Samuel 19, remember later in King Saul's life, he, he has a very similar experience of the redirecting work of the Spirit. Remember, he finds out uh, that David is in Ramah and he's sending uh, messenger after messenger to go capture David. And what happens to each of those messengers? The Spirit comes upon them. They get diverted from what they were intending to do and they end up prophesying. And so Saul eventually goes down and he says, okay, well, I'll go do it myself. I'll go get him. And he goes down and what happens? The Spirit comes upon him and he doesn't capture David. He ends up stripping naked and prophesying in front of Samuel. Was that what Saul was intending? Was that what Saul was wanting to do? No. But the spirit was working in a way that wasn't up to what Saul wanted to do. Right? Does that sound like some vague leading of the spirit? You know, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12, tells us concerning this salvation, talking about the gospel, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Do you see what Peter's saying? Saying they didn't even understand what they were saying. Many times God was speaking things through them that didn't make sense to them and they would sit down and they would have to think about that and say, okay, well, what? I I just said that. The spirit just said that. What? What did that actually mean? They didn't know. It wasn't up to their understanding. It wasn't up to their interpretation. When God wanted to get his message across, he made it very clear, even if initially the people who were speaking it didn't understand. Right? And so we see that concept time and time and time again. Um, let me give uh, a couple caveats here. Um, <coughs> First of all, you, you may think of a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 40, where Paul says um, he's talking about some uh, judgment of, of wisdom, that in this situation it's better that the widows stay unmarried. And he says, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. <laughs> you know, maybe you might look at that and think, well, it sounds like Paul is kind of thinking like, I, I think maybe the Spirit is telling you this. I think Paul, Paul is te- speaking tongue-in-cheek te- there. Um, he, he's not giving them a command that this is what you must do and God says it. He's giving them wisdom, judgment, but he's, he's kind of maybe almost sarcastically making it clear. And you remember, I do have the Spirit of God, right? Uh, I think especially based on what Second Peter chapter 1 says, it wasn't up to private interpretation. I, th- I don't think Paul is saying... Um, you know, wait, wait a second, I'm going I'm to say something and, and maybe this is from God, maybe it isn't. That, that's not what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 7 when he makes a contrast between I say to you and the Lord says to you. I think he's making a contrast between what they could have already known from what Jesus said and what now the Spirit is revealing through Paul. Um, so just, just in case, you know, we, we think maybe this, this other concept of, of inspiration uh, is, is visible in the scripture. I don't think that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. Um, and certainly, you know, God often used the experiences, uh, the, the circumstances, um, even, you know, uh, the, 
the things that people uh, witnessed or the witnesses that they talked to. God even uh, uses the unique vocabulary of the people that, that he is working through. But God did not leave his message uh, up to the understanding or perception of the, the biblical writers. Um, God didn't entrust his message up to their mind and capabilities any more than he entrusted it to the mind and capability of Balaam's donkey. Um, and so this was not the product of their hearts, their minds. Uh, this was God putting his words in their mouth, speaking through them. Um, and let, let me also say, we talked uh, in our last study about the presence of God's spirit with us and how this idea of what we might many times call providence, uh, really biblically, we should talk about it as the, the working of God's spirit in our life. I think there are certainly ways, ways that we see biblically that God may open doors or close doors, that God may bring about opportunities in our lives, that God may allow challenges to arise as teaching moments, that he may bring in certain influences or take out certain influences from our lives, that he may grant blessings, he may grant success in certain things. Um, we're not saying that God is not at work, that God's spirit is not at work in other ways within our life, but that is not how the spirit accomplishes his work of revelation of making God's will known to me. Uh, revelation is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. <laughs> Providence or the working of God's spirit uh, in our lives is Mordecai saying to Esther, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such time as this. It's not that God isn't working in other ways, um, but God does not entrust the revelation of his will to us to some vague happening in our life, right? Um, we, we, we can look at things that happen in our lives and say, perhaps that was God's plan all along. Perhaps God is doing this. Perhaps, you know, this trial is actually helping me and I can glorify God for that and thank him for that. Uh, perhaps, the, you know, this blessing in my life, uh, you know, I can give glory to God from that. That, that came from him. But, but when we talk about God guiding us, God leading us, God revealing his will for our lives, we get a much different picture biblically. It's not left up to private interpretation. It's not left up to us to discern what God is doing. If God wants us to know what he's doing, he might just yank us by the hair and tell us, right? Uh, it's a much different picture that we get biblically. And so there's a, there's a lot more to talk about uh, when we talk about the revealing of truth through God's spirit. And I hope in our next study to address more directly how the Bible instructs us to discern the spirits, to discern between uh, false prophets and true revelation, and whether or not we should expect new revelation from the spirit today. Um, but, but I want to leave us today with one clear principle. The, the revealing and guiding work of the spirit in scripture is not some vague emotion-based tugging of my heart. Uh, it's not dependent on human interpretation. Uh, and if that's what I've been following, um, then I need to repent. I need to turn back to the Lord and stop following the deception of my own heart. And so what about you today? Um, are you listening to the revelation of God's spirit? Are you listening to his word, his revealed will? Um, or 
have you found yourself perhaps listening to something else? Um, to your own perceptions, your own emotions, your own interpretations of what you feel like God might want you to do. God has told you, God has revealed to you through his spirit everything that he desires of you. And we need to listen. We need to give his word, the sword of his spirit, the proper attention um, that he might do his perfect work within our hearts and within our lives. If you're convicted today that you need to make some change, if there's any way that can help you in making a change and coming back to the Lord and committing your life to him for the first time, remember in Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter tells the, the people to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on in Acts chapter 3, he describes that as times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord. Do you want to be in fellowship with the Lord? Do you want to have God's spirit at work within your life, transforming you, bearing its fruit within you? Then you need to come to him with a repentant heart. You need to bury your old man of sin in baptism. You need to be raised to walk in newness of life, being born again of water and the spirit. If there's any way that we can help you in that, uh, won't you make that known at this time by coming forward as we stand and sing together?